Welcome to Savage. I'm your host, Kelsey Kenry, CEO, wife, and mom of three. This is where you find the aligned strategy and mindset shifts to unleash your power, unlock your freedom, and step into your full potential as a CEO. Every episode is full of tough love and hard truths with a side of tactical guidance to expand your success. You ready? Let's do the damn thing. pick up your you know ignorance like can't they mm. why don't they just like pick up some some knowledge or truths or something like that I don't know yeah um. welcome to the Bravehearted podcast where we are changing the way you get inspiration by allowing you to hear resilience and victory and hard stories we discuss new methods on handling life situations so you can show up confidently in your life we are different Because instead of just giving you inspiration through stories, we give you actionable tools to make the change that you want to make. Let's live bravely today. Welcome to episode 26 of the Bravehearted Podcast. My name is Mindy Mercurio, career coach, helping exhausted women let go of fear to find passion in their work. Just as a reminder, some of the material we talk about is deep and can sometimes be controversial. Please use headphones when listening in public or around children. Today on the podcast, we do have a special guest. But first, as always, we'd like to introduce co-host of the mostest. Kelsey Kenry. Oh, hostess with the most is all I can think about is hostess cupcakes when you say that. So that's where <laughs> that's where my brain is, obviously. So for those of you that don't know, my name is Kelsey Kenry, and I'm a personal development coach working with women all over the world to find their courage and find their voice and take action in their lives. So today I'm really excited because we actually have a an old client, a friend of mine. And um, we, so we have Lauren Jackson with us today. And Lauren is an assistant professor in the departments of English at Northwestern University. She's the author of White Negroes, When Cornrows Were in Vogue, and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation. Her criticism and essays have appeared in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, New York Magazine's Vulture, and The Washington Post, among other places. She's currently working on a second book on the back with Amistad Press and Harper Collins. This is very cool, mostly because I'm like, I knew you were cool because we work together, but I'm like, she's like famous. <laughs> she's written a book and stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, thanks for thanks for being here and being here um, on short notice, especially. But really, I think. I want to kind of start it off by saying um, or asking you, like, what are your feelings right now with everything that's happening? Well, you know, I think I'm just like, I'm really tired. (laughs) It's just like, in like, you know, every, every sense of that, that word. And I think a lot of people are, are actually just like, really just like super exhausted, like not even, like I can't even like, I'm not even like angry anymore really. Like there's no like, I don't think it's rage. It's just like sort of like dejection and just like tiredness and exhaustion. And 
Um, you know, I think part of it is that, you know, there's just like so many, there's like so much, there's like a lot happening and it's like nothing that you can like, you can't actually let yourself sort of feel the full weight of like the world or like you would like actually collapse. And so I think mm -hmm. for me, it's like, you know, maybe not like a conscious sort of like compartmentalizing thing, but it is one of those things where it's like, you know, I have to like have a day and I have to like read emails and stuff. And I can't like, I can't do that if I just like think about everything. So I think like, if I had to like put like a single word on it, I think it would be like tired, but also, you know, also, you know, kind of like kind of hopeful. I actually think like this is probably the most hopeful I've been like in like the past four years, which like it seems like a weird thing to say in the middle of like a global pandemic and like, you know, cops beating people up in the street. But I think, you know, this sort of sort of outpouring is like evidence of like, it's like, that's what happens before like change happens. It's mm. like this stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think like this is like the sort of glimmer, you know, that I think feels in some ways is like more heartening to see than, you know, everybody sort of continuing as if it's like business as usual. Yeah. And I think that you bring up a good point about kind of like the separation that I think everybody's feeling a bit of that about like, okay, we're involved, but like, we still have to raise kids or run businesses or work. And it's like, where, where is the line? And how do I, how do I feel like for me, the struggle has been, how do I feel this overwhelming sadness and guilt and regret while also being in my personal life and my business life to where I'm so grateful and so happy. And it's hard to feel that like rainbow of emotions, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think also knowing sort of where and how to like express that range of emotion, I think is also mm -hmm. really tough for people right now. Um, I think there's a lot of, I, you know, at least on social media, which is like where I live, um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of like litigating and like relitigating, like what is the right thing to say? What is the wrong thing to say? You know, yeah. am I allowed to like post a picture of my breakfast in like the middle of this or like does everything yeah. I have yes. does, like, everything I post like have to be you know a link to something or like a book that you should read or whatever it's like mm. where does the sort of like sort of like everyday like banal things like where does that fit in a moment that like feels historic mm. I think people are still you know arguing that out basically yeah, it's true. It's true. And that's exactly why I made the post. I talked about it in my story yesterday and I made the post that I did last night because I'm like, I feel this rainbow of emotions. I, I refuse to back down on how I'm going to help, how I am helping, what I want to do, but also I still have to run my business. And so I, I think that, yeah, it is it is like you're questioning everything around you. But in the same sense, I feel like as a white person, um, I should be. Like, you know what I mean? Like the Black community has to question themselves and in and, and so many places that I'm learning that I would have never even thought about. I had a conversation with uh, one of my clients and her husband is... 
African-American and he's, and we were just talking and I was like, you know, how are you feeling and all this? And she kind of just was like telling me about how she was feeling. And she was like, yeah, and my husband's black. And I was like, wait, <laughs> like, is he okay? Like how, like, how has that been for you guys? So I just started kind of digging in and asking questions and it was like, just it's so normalized to people. She's like, every time he leaves for work, I worry that he's going to, that he could be hurt or killed. And I'm like, that's something I never think about. I just can't imagine. Yeah. I just, I feel like I I couldn't picture myself living in that kind of world. And Kelsey, I shared this with you the other day, but it's just like this whole entire situation has brought so much more attention to things for me that I never really thought about. So my husband and I were um, in a wholesale uh, store the other day, and I won't call out the name of the wholesale store, but we were there to pick up our groceries, and there was an African-American woman ahead of us, and she had been there waiting for quite a while, and she said, yeah, three associates passed by me and not said anything at all, and I was like, oh, man, like, I, I thought maybe they were just busy or whatever, and so this uh, associate comes and passes by and looks at me and my husband, and she's like, have you guys been helped? And I was like, no, I was like, she hasn't either. And she's like, okay. And then she's like, what's your last name? And I was like, oh, you know, I told her. And then she goes off to get my order. And my husband looks at me and he's like, well, what about her? And I was like, oh my God, you're right. What about her? And it's just like that, that one small thing where like, we like got served before this other woman. And I was just like, things like that just blow my mind. Like, I don't even think about those kind of things, which shame on me for not noticing or thinking about it. Like, I just couldn't imagine being in that position where you almost, I mean, and you do get treated like your second class. Mm. It's not, you know, it's not surprising that like you, that you wouldn't think about that because it's like, you know, it's to your, it's to everyone's benefit that like no one thinks about it or like no one talks about it or no one like mentions it or whatever. And I think there's a way in which even, you know, being like a black person, it's like, you know, it's sort of like I was saying before, like you don't, you know, you don't even think about it that like, I don't even think about it that often. It's not like I, you know, every time I go out in public, I'm consciously thinking about the ways in which, you know, I have to like comport myself in order to be like considered like a person like when I go outside like if I actually had to consciously think about all of those like sort of like micro adjustments like again like my brain would explode or something like it's like you can't Mm -hmm, you know it's like in incalculable or something like that but you know it is something that you know once you do sort of like turn that light bulb on it's like it arrives in like a lot of like surprising places like even just like you know, standing in line or whatever. And like, someone will just like stand in front of you. It's like, you're not even there. And I'm just like, uh, like, hi. But then it's like, if you're the person that's like, you're like, excuse me, like, then you're like the asshole, right? Like you're (laughs) like the person who like pointed it out. Or like, there's always like that sort of like plausible deniability of like, oh, sorry, I didn't notice you there. Like, whatever. It's like, I mean, come on, like you saw me. I mean, I'm short, but like, I'm not that small. Like, (laughs) Right. <laughs> you are you are short. You are short, but it's still no excuse. <laughs> Definitely not. But it's you bring up a really good point in just going back to what you said about this being a glimmer of hope. Because if anything, I believe there is a huge shift in our awareness. Mm-hmm. Right, like we are all seeing things that we didn't see before. 
what do you think needs to, people need to continue in order to like not make this temporary in, in order for us to make a real lasting change? What do you think needs to happen? <sighs> oh, wow. Well, I mean, a lot of stuff, but I mean, no, yeah. um, <laughs> I think so this is where I'm going to draw like a really weird comparison, but I think there's like a way in which when the pandemic like sort of took off and it's like, you know, still happening. I know it like feels like, you know, we moved on to another thing, but like, yeah, yeah there's like, you know, COVID-19, like that's still a thing. Hello. Um, <laughs> you know, I think we were all, and I think to some extent are still sort of like waiting for like that, like silver bullet of like, something is going to just like someone's going to discover a vaccine and then the next day it's like going to be life as usual mm. um like the idea that like you can acquire something that is just going to like flip the lights on and then like everything's going to be good and mm. i think you know i feel like people sort of approach like the idea of like anti-racism like the same way like if I just read this book or like maybe not even read the book, which is like have the book on my shelf or I listen to this podcast or, you know, watch that documentary or movie or whatever, then there's going to be like a part of my brain that like activates and I'm all of a sudden going to know everything about racism and race. And like, I'm, you know, I've ascended. And then like, you know, if everyone could do that, like the world would just be a better place. And mm -hmm. it's like, you know, no, <laughs> it, it actually, you know, doesn't work that way. It is like a, you know, it's an ongoing thing that like has to be worked toward and it has to be like, has to be like wanted, like you have to want to acquire that kind of information. And there's always, you know, you always have to be learning and not just learning, but sort of like materially putting what you learn like into practice. Like I can, you know, know everything in the world about like, you know, nutrition or like how to take care of myself. But, you know, if there's for some reason, like I'm not putting that into practice, then it's like my body doesn't know the difference whether I know that stuff or not, if it, you know, isn't getting what it needs to like survive. Right. And so I think it's the same thing about sort of like anti-racist knowledge, which is like, you know, reading the book is like all fine and well, but it's like, how are you, you know, what kind of conversations are you having with people at the dinner table, when your relatives visit, when your friends visit, you know, when you see things happening in the world. I mean, you know, racist incidents like very rarely are just like happening, you know, in like quiet spaces. No, these are happening like in public, like where there's people who are just like, bystanders um mm -hmm. I mean you think about I mean the the whole like Amy Cooper incident which was like feels like it was like five years ago but I think that was last week or something which just to for if anyone doesn't know there's a woman who was like caught on camera in Central Park in New York City I believe basically like threatening to call the police on this black man who was like a bird watcher who was just like asking her like to leash her dog because it was an area of the park where, you know, you have to have your dog leashed in public. And I think, I don't know, he just asked her to leash her dog. She was on the phone with the police, like saying he was being threatening. Like she wasn't even, she was like approaching him. He was not even approaching her. It was just, and it basically went viral and, you know, it, you know, sparked this whole thing about like what happens when, you know, white people 
call the police. But like, this was in like a public park. Like they were, I'm sure there were bystanders. I'm sure there were witnesses. And like, if like the police had come and if the worst had happened, it's just like, you know, that was, that would be like a public incident. And so I'm kind of getting away from the question, but that's just all to say that I think like, it's one of those things where it's like the second you think you got it, it's like, you, you don't have it. Like you definitely don't have it. Like the second you think that you are like, have like ascended into like this new place of knowledge and that your actions are not contributing harm is like, that's actually the dangerous place. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think about like a book, like, you know, white fragility by Robin DiAngelo, which is like, I go back and forth on that book and it has its, it has its issues, but you know, she has this, I think, really great observation, which is that like the people who cause the most sort of like daily, like sort of aggressive or like passive aggressive or microaggressive harm to like people of color on a daily basis are like not the like in the street, like alt-right, like Nazi, KKK, like whatever. It's like not those people. It's Mm. like the well-meaning, like liberal, feel good, like white people in like their job or at, you know, a barbecue or whatever. It's like those people, like the people that get like parodied in like something like Get Out that like say they would have like voted for Obama like five times if they could or whatever. Like those are the people who are like, you know, increase my blood pressure or whatever, you know, it's not (laughs) like the person who like I know is a racist and like, I'm just like, not gonna hang out with you. Right. It's the Mm. person who I'm like, I love you and you're my friend, but like, you're also very ignorant and it hurts my feelings. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It makes sense though, because it's like the people closest to you, which kind of, it, it aligns with a lot of the conversations that I've had with clients this week about having hard conversations with the people that are close to you. And that's, I think one of the biggest things. And, and you bring up a really good point about like, we have to consistently grow and consistently learn. And that aligns with like everything that I teach and that's every area. And this is no different because it's something that a lot of people are starting from rock bottom, right? That we know nothing about, that we've lived our lives just a certain way. And it's like, oh, this is something new. So it's not, I love that you bring up, like you can't just read the book or listen to the podcast. Like you take in the information and then you have to take action with that information. And that's like a repeated thing that you have to do forever. And I think that a lot of people are scared about like speaking up and, and they discredit themselves. Even some of my clients this week, that's like, they, they're like, I feel like I'm not doing enough. And I'm like, are you having conversations? Like if somebody makes a racist comment, are you going to say something? Because it all, you know, change can start with one person. And if you change yourself and if you are, you say something, I said last night to a client, she's worried about her in-laws because they are racist. And she's like, I'm worried she's pregnant. She's like, I'm worried about them rubbing off on, on my daughter. And I'm like, if they say something, it's your job to speak up. It's your job to set that boundary. And while it feels like, okay, I'm not changing the world in a sense you are, because if you speak up to that one person, then what happens if the next time they go to make a racist comment, they think about it first. And then the next time they're like, maybe I shouldn't say that. And then they stop saying it all together. And I think that's the problem here is it's such a big thing. It's like 
our goals, right? We look at it and we're like, this is too big. So I don't want to touch it. So then people just don't. That was me. Cause I'm like, this is such a big thing. I don't know a lot about it. So since I'm ignorant, I'm not going to speak up. And I see how privileged that is now. I see how wrong that was because it's like, as somebody who has an, an engaged social platform, like how much time did I waste? Like how, what, what part could I have played in, in any sort of prevention of this? And, you know, that's another part of this is like, it's really making people, including myself, like we were stripped of everything in quarantine. Like we lost everything. We lost our distractions. We lost our friends, our families, all this stuff. And then this hits. So it's like, you're forced to look at yourself and now you're forced to take an even deeper look at yourself. So if you weren't looking at yourself, you damn sure are now because yeah. shit is very real. Like, and you can't sit back. Like you can't sit back. It doesn't matter where you live. Like this is spread so far and wide. Like you can't, you can't be silent. And if you are, then I, I have a hard time under, I have a hard time understanding why you can't speak up at least in an individual conversation. I understand people, it's not everybody's route to post on social media or to donate or sign petition. I, I get that. But like doing nothing, I think just, it's just not, it's not an option. What is, what's your opinion on, you know, kind of the, the silence of people and what do you, like, what kind of advice would you have for somebody that's scared? Like a lot of people are scared about saying the wrong thing, right? What kind of advice would you have for somebody that's kind of scared or kind of paralyzed with fear right now? Yeah. I mean, I, I get, I get the fear of saying the wrong thing and I get how you know, I think some people, you know, see what happens on social media and they're just like, well, whatever I say is going to be, you know, it's going to be the wrong thing. So like, why mm-hmm. even bother? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know. Social media is like, it's kind of scary. I mean, if people like, if you're like, I think we like joke on Twitter that there's like, there's always just like a, a main character of the day. And the goal is to like, not be that person, which is to say like, there's like someone we've chosen as like, we're going to like pile on you for like the whole day. Cause like you said something stupid and it's just like, the mm. goal is to like never be that person, which is like, yeah. you know, a joke, it's like a joke, but it's also like kind of true, but very true. Uh, very true. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also think like, it's also just like, I don't know. I don't know. People are like, you know, like people are dying. So it's just like, it's kind of like, well, you know, there are, things that you could like you can repost things like you can retweet things you can like put up you know links to like resources and things like that that are like you know no one you know you don't have to like I think people like to I think part of the problem is that I think we like to like feel like we're making a statement like Mm. you know a nicely like crafted like oratorial like type of like individualized like this is from my perspective, like kind of stance, because I think that's like, you know, that's what social media is for. Like it's for your own personal expression. Right. Right. And so I think people don't want to just like post something that feels rote, but honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with just like putting something useful and sort of like keeping it moving. Like, I don't, you know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be like an essay. It doesn't have to be like a, I don't know, like a, 
a Pulitzer speech or something like that. Um, you know, there are like very sort of banal things to say. I mean, you have like, I mean, we have like brands, like corporate brands saying like Black Lives Matter now, which like, as a person who like lived through like 2014 is like wild to me. Like, <laughs> it is like actually kind of like crazy how like, like I would have never thought, you know, and I'm not saying it's like, you know, I'm gonna go, you know, march for like L'Oreal or something like that, but it's like actually kind of wild to like see, you know, a national international brand just like put it out there. Cause like, I remember, mm. you know, back in the day when saying like Black Lives Matter, like you might've like well been like, you know, tossing around like pipe bombs or something like that. Like that's how inflammatory that statement yeah. used to be. <laughs> but I also think, you know, silence, I I also, okay, this like, this actually might be like controversial, but I also think like silence can be a virtue actually, which is to say, I like, at least like silence on social media. So mm-hmm. like a lot of like celebrities, I think get in trouble because like they do want to do like the whole big statement thing when it's like, actually, you could just like, you know, you're rich. Like just put, if you put your money in the right place mm. and never said a word about any of this stuff, like I I actually wouldn't care. Like I, you know, I think it's great that like, you know, Taylor Swift, for example, like, you know, called out white supremacy. Like, I think that's really great. I think that's really cool. And I think, you know, she has a huge platform, an enormous platform. But, of white people. You know, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Like people like, and, and me, and me. Um, <laughs> uh, truly. Um, but also I think like, you know, resources are like what, what matters. Like resources, money, you know, time. And, and like you were saying, like speaking within like your local networks. Like if every white person who means well, like never send anything on social media, but like talk to just their household even, or like their extended family, like that would do so much more than, you know, oftentimes what happens on social media is like, you're sort of preaching, feels like you're preaching to the choir essentially, because, Mm. you know, it feels like these networks are so extensive, but like, you know, they're really very curated. You know, if I post something like there's, you know, I rarely get ever like pushback because like, you wouldn't follow me or like read my work if you weren't probably already sort of halfway invested into like the things that I'm invested in. And so um, I think the last thing I I did want to say is that like, I think we, as Americans, like we're very good at thinking like nationally, like as Americans. So like when the 2016 election happened, you know, there were a lot of people who felt very despondent and I think put that energy into like the head guy in charge and like railing against him and wanting to fight against him and wanting to vote him out of office and, you know, contradicting the things that he says when, you know, actually like our ability to like, as individuals to affect change on a natural, on a national level and like a direct way is like, is like very, it's like very limited, if not like sort of impossible. Right. Mm -hmm. But like when things happen, you know, we donate to, the Red Cross, we donate to the ACLU, we donate to like these huge organizations where, you know, your $25 is like not actually going to make it back into the community when, you know, actually if you like gave that $25 to like a local place, it's like, or if you like invested in learning who your local politicians are 
or your older, like the people who are right next door, like mm. that is actually going to be so much more, that's going to affect someone's life so much more than, you know, being mad at the president. Mm. Yeah. That's such a great point. I actually read something, I think it was Barack Obama that posted it the other day, who was talking about local elections and like making change. And um, he said, you know, you guys can be mad, you can get out and, you know, riot and make all this best. But at the end of the day, what's going to really make change is getting out and voting and taking interest in your local elections and what's going on locally in your community instead of, you know, making this loud, you know, statement, this loud mess and all the things that you guys are doing right now. And I think that, you know, you make a great point. A lot of times it's just, you know, simple, small actions. You don't need to get out and make this huge, like you said, oratorical statement, you know, taking a small action, a small step in the right direction is one of the biggest things that you can do. Mm -hmm. Because it's better than standing still. Yep. Yes. And that, that's, that kind of aligns with you know, it's starting with our children and us Mm. having the responsibility as parents to be better parents and to stop sheltering our children so much that we're raising ignorant adults because that's what's happening is that people are so sheltered and people are so afraid to talk. Nobody talks to their kids about sex. Nobody talks about racism. Nobody talks about money. Nobody talks about politics. I mean, Nobody ever talked to me about any of these things. Nope. And I'm ignorant now. So it's like, thanks for that. You know what I mean? But it's like, it's, it's our job as parents. And Lauren, I actually have an idea that I'm thinking about, and I would love to get your, your response to it because I know obviously with you teaching that it's probably something that comes into play when you're teaching as well. But my kind of thought is, you know, what would happen if there was some sort of curriculum like for children in which we teach them how to feel their feelings, how to express emotion, how to communicate effectively? When I look at this situation, I think about what a big, it sounds like I'm making it smaller and that's not my intent, but it's a big misunderstanding of people. Nobody understands each other. Like nobody, the reason why there's anger, right? Anger is like the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, twelfth emotion that shows like there's so many layers of emotion underneath that. And so my thought is like, how can we create a better place in which people who are on opposite sides of the fence can at least sit down and while they may not agree with each other. They can understand each other better, you know, because that's, I just think about how everything is manifesting and everybody's so angry and everybody's so harsh to each other. And what would happen with the officer that, that murdered George Floyd, because that's what he did. What were underneath his layers? Why was he so angry? Why is there not some sort of psychological evaluation? Like every time they clock into a shift, like on a scale of one to 10, how angry are you today? Oh, I'm an eight. Okay, go home. Goodbye. Like, well, I know this is, seems like a, such a big thing, but it's like, and then on the children's side, like what would happen to our children if when kids are, you know, teenagers or young adolescents or whatever, if they're like, Hey man, like, I don't really like that thing you did. It kind of hurt my feelings. 
like, is this even possible? But like, that's, that's kind of like where my, where my head's at. And I would love to get kind of your opinion on, on those thoughts. Yeah. Um, there's a lot there. Um, I mean, (laughs) sorry, my brain's like (laughs) (laughs) exploding. I mean, I would love if like, I mean, I would love if that was like something that was like baked into like the schools, like the school system, you know, I don't Mm -hmm. think like the school has to like fix everything. But I mean, if you think about like how much time kids spend in school or, you know, how much time they did before COVID-19, like all those hours, like more time in school, I think than like, I mean, I'm trying to remember like my childhood, like I, you know, if you, especially if you added like extracurriculars and sports and stuff, like I, pretty sure I spent more time at school than I did at home. Maybe that's mm-hmm. not real, but, but it's like, it's like so much time and, you know, school really does teach you how to be like a person in the world, how to interact with other people, whose, you know, whose voices get to speak like the loudest, who gets to be called on, who, you know, gets to be treated a certain way. Just like how, you know, it's like how to treat people like that stuff, like so much of that stuff happens in school and school is so, I mean, it's like, it's more, it's like as disparate and as like segregated as, as it's ever been. It's just like, you know, the irony of like, you know, in the wake of like Brown versus Board of Education, you know, it's technically illegal to like segregate schools, but you know, they've gotten around that by you create neighborhoods where only certain people can afford to go there and Mm -hmm. oh well the schools are funded by the public schools are funded by the taxes paid by the neighborhood so if your neighborhood has like a lot of really expensive houses where people are paying like you know ten thousand dollars in like a year in taxes on their house and that's all going to the school well what is that school going to afford compared to like the neighborhood that you know people are, you know, still renting or it's controlled by landlords or, you know, people are in public housing, you know? Wow. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. I think like, (laughs) I, and, and, you know, and obviously, and I think something I kind of like think about or have been thinking about, you know, as a person who's like in, I'm in my late twenties, like moving into my thirties. And as people are like, getting married and settle down, settling down and starting to have kids, you know, I think, I think like having children is the point where I think a lot of otherwise like very liberal, usually white people, but not always like a lot of like affluent people of color, like also kind of, it's like where their, their sort of like weaknesses like start to show because everybody wants the best for their kids. Right. So, you know, it, it sounds really nice to say like, oh yes, like, everyone should invest in their public schools or, you know, everyone should be, you know, living together in the same neighborhood or diverse, you know, diverse cities, diverse neighborhoods, diverse schools, whatever. But then, you know, when people have kids, like you want the best for your kid. And like the idea of sending your kid to a school that seems quote unquote subpar is like, you know, frightening because like school sets up your kid for, for life. Like people are fighting to get into like private premium preschools, right? Auditioning for like a preschool, like your kids, like, you know, your kids too, like they're not gifted. They're two years old. <laughs> um, it's, it's so that, that, that's all to say that like, I, I do think like, 
even though like, you know, studies have shown that, you know, when affluent parents send their kids to public school, the public, the school gets better and the, the affluent child, like their education actually doesn't change, like the level of their, like their ability to like, you know, rocket ship to Princeton or whatever, that, that doesn't change for going to public school because they have parents with the resources to make sure they can do that. Meanwhile, everybody else's education actually improves because you have a base of parents who have the time and the resources and the money to, you know, get up like the administration's ass if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing in the schools. Mm. And so I think like, even just like changing the way we educate, I mean, changing the way we educate kids in, in, in this country would, it would change everything. It would change like so much. And, you know, I, I mean, I teach, so like I teach college and by the time someone gets to, and I teach at, you know, private school, like a very, a very expensive uh, private university. Um, and so, but we have like, you know, a range of, we have all kinds of students there. We have students on Pell Grants, we have undocumented students, we have black students, students, students of all different um, nationalities and things like that. But you know, I think there's a way in which even in like a college classroom, there's so many inequities, but everyone assumes because you're on the same campus that you're like, like everyone's level, you're in the same dorm, you're eating the same food, you're going to the same classes, therefore it is level. And like one of the things that this pandemic has shown as we're like sending people back home, some people in homes where, you know, they're not food secure, where, you know, if they have to, if they're going to be home, like they're going to have to like work. And so they are like, they're both students and essential workers. So they have a full course load and they're also going out to work at like a grocery store, you know, people in housing that, you know, is, you know, they fear they're not safe. And so I think if anything, I hope at least to administration, but you know, you never know, has shown that like, you know, even college kids, like they're not, they're not equal. They're not coming from like equal backgrounds or, or anything like that. And so addressing those inequities, like in the classroom is like, so, so crucial. I'm really rambling, but that is all, that is all to say, like, I do wish we like had a school system that like taught people like how to, or like enable people to like feel their feelings in ways that like, don't like bring harm to other people too. Yes. Well, like, and I well, I was just going to say, I, I think that fear and shame and guilt come around with this too, right? Because like Kelsey, you were talking about earlier, what would happen if that officer, you know, had said, man, I'm really angry today or knew how to express his feelings. And then you said something that really struck with me, which was, you know, is there a mental evaluation every day that says, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how angry are you? Well, someone may not feel safe to say that they're an eight, right? Like they may mm -hmm. feel like, oh, my job would be on the line if I admitted that I have this anger inside of me or someone's going to judge me if I admit that I have these feelings or that I'm oh, ignorant sure. to this, this situation. So there's got to be a way. Um, and I think it starts early on, especially as parents, teach your kids that it's okay to have feelings and it's okay to express them making sure that we express them in the right ways, obviously, and that we're able to communicate how we feel crucial, absolutely crucial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just about figuring out like 
how do, how do we do that? You know? And that's, that's kind of, that's where, where I'm at is like, (laughs) how do I get myself there? You know, it's like, we talked about this big overwhelming thing, which kind of brings me, I was going to ask you, Lauren, how do you see like white privilege or how do you see racism even showing up like on your campus? Oh, I mean, it's like, (laughs) oh, that's like a complicated question. I mean, so I mean, they don't, I mean, they don't, they don't call it institutionalized racism for like no reason. Like I, sorry, I saw like a really funny tweet that was like, oh, like universities now want to talk about institutionalized racism. And it's like, baby, you are the institutionalized racism. Yeah. <laughs> like you are like, you're the institution that is like racist. Yeah. Um, but, but like, you know, the modern, I mean, yeah, the modern university is like, it's, it, it's incredibly you know, incredibly racist. I mean, I, so I did my PhD at the University of Chicago, which is located on, you know, nominally the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood, Hyde Park, Obama's uh, old neighborhood, Hyde Park. And University of Chicago employs like the largest private police force in the country. Like the, like private police, largest in the country, like that to me, like when I found that out, I was like, that is staggering. But like, yeah, if you like walk around on campus and the thing is like Hyde Park is, I don't even want to say like Hyde Park is a very safe neighborhood. Cause like, that's just like, you know that already like is like sort of feeding into like oh, it's like not even sketchy. It would be totally okay if it was sketchy. No, it's not okay. But like, if you, you know, Hyde Park is just like it's little, it's like, it's almost like it almost feels like a suburb when you're like there. Like it's, it's like 10 miles away from like downtown Chicago. It's just like very, it's very insular and just like small and cute and like family friendly and whatever. But like you walk around the edges of campus and you just like, it's just like nothing to see like cop cars, just like cops hanging out and like cops actually shot a student a couple, a couple years ago, I believe who was like having, was like in like mental distress and like, they just like shot him. It's just like, yeah. So, you know, that's one way, you know, there's also, you know, all the other sort of ways that we know that, you know, colleges exist now to, I guess, preserve or crystallize, you know, certain inequalities, you know, the people who can take the, who can get the SAT tutor to just like take the SAT until their eyes bleed, until they game out the, game out the test and get like a really good score. Uh, I mean, I think something that was really interesting about the, you know, the varsity blues, is that what they called it? Varsity blues, like the bust, uh, the, like the celebrities trying to finesse their kids into, into college. Is that like, I remember there were like a lot of people who were like, you're like, wow, like I worked really hard and like I got into college like the old fashioned way or like the, you know, the, I, you know, pulled myself up and like, that's how I got into college and look at these people taking, you know, photos of like fake lacrosse teams or whatever. And it's like that sentiment right there, like the idea that you think because you, your parent wasn't famous or they weren't, you know, rich by the standards of like, you know, millions of dollars versus like, growing up in a house that's worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars or something like that. Like you think that like this conversation doesn't apply to you, but it's like, but it's like, you're still, you know, you're still white 
or you were still affluent or middle class, or you were still, you know, you went to a school with like, you know, you might have actually gone to a school with a lacrosse team. Like, do you know how many high schools like do not have a lacrosse team, don't have a swim team, like you had a pool in your school, like that. <laughs> it's just like all these things that like, again, like we were talking about, like, you know, this starts so early. It's mm-hmm. like, it's, you know, it's the, the privileges and inequities, like it's accumulative, like it starts when you're, I mean, it starts like before you're born, but like, you know, it just like accumulates throughout your life. And so, yeah, I mean, college, I think, you know, I think the public, you know, public universities were, you know, there was a time when, you know, they were largely sort of like a force, I think, for for good and for upward, you know, upward mobility. And now they're, I mean, they're just as unaffordable as the as the private colleges. Hmm. They're just as like inaccessible, you know, people are still killing themselves trying to get like a perfect ACT score and GPA, like just to go to like, like I went to a state state school, but it's like a state school that like thinks very, like University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, like that thinks very nicely of itself. But yeah, I mean, racism, it's like, yeah, it's it's like if I had to like make a checklist, like I would never yeah. stop talking. I would never yeah. stop talking. I mean, from yeah. the students to the staff and like the fact that like it's not an accident that like most of the staff at like any university, like it's like black people and brown people. It's like, that's who you see. And then all the students are like mostly white and, and like the faculty is mostly white. Like, and then like, you know, just racism within like the professoriate. It's like, that's a whole other thing, but it's just like, I can't even complain because I got, you know, I'm lucky enough to have an academic job, which is like not a thing that people can get really anymore. But yeah, I mean, uh, that's the thing. It's like, it's in, it's like in the walls of like, <laughs> like yeah. literally, I mean, like half of these like universities on the East coast were like, like Brown, like would not exist. Like Brown literally got its like first endowment from like slave labor <laughs> Wow. And like you know you go to university I went to University of Virginia for the first time this past fall and it's like beautiful campus beautiful but like they have like like the slave quarters are like still there and it's like you know this entire like bowing at the feet of like Thomas Jefferson like everywhere you turn and you're like mm. oh like this is like this is the south like this is okay and that stuff like you know Charlottesville like it does not go away it's just like always there it's in every like one of the things that I'm really realizing is how much racism like you said is built into every system like we were watching Eric and I were watching 13th the documentary last night and talking about the prison system and you know all all the presidents and the different bill and all that kind of stuff and it's just like wow (laughs) you know like it's just it's, it's built in for separation, like in every aspect, like it's just every avenue, whether you look at the school system or the political system, you know, and all of the little, the, the micro places, whether it's in individual stores, it's just, it's insane to me to realize, I guess, really what a big problem it is, you know? And I guess that's, that's really kind of the ignorance that is white privilege because you don't, 
you know, you don't see color, you know, you're, so you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not racist. I don't see color. And like, that was always my stance. I'm like, I grew up like er, around people. Like we, I went to diverse schools besides in Florida, but in Texas, it's like, you know, we didn't, my dad lived in a nicer house. My mom did not. Like I played with children of every color. Like I didn't. And so for me, I was like, well, I'm not racist. And then I'm like learning all these things. And I'm like, have I ever said that? Have I ever acted in that way? Have I ever? So it's like questioning myself, but it's like every single avenue, no matter like what, what you look at, it's like, oh, that's a racist comment or that's like a racist action or like I'm, I'm listening to how to be an anti-racist by, uh, Ibram Kendi. And it's so good. And he's even talking about racism within the black community. And I'm like, it's, it's just, it's very eye opening. And I feel like, you know, that awareness is such an, an important part. Like you said, just like, you know, opening our eyes to what's really going on. How do you think, you know, as a teacher, how do you think that teachers and or parents, I agree with you as far as like the hours that our children spend, like most times the, the number of hours overall are going to be spent. If you have two parents that work, especially are going to be more with caretakers or more with teachers than with your parents. So I feel bad for like the, the burden that, that teachers have to carry in that to know, but realistically it's like, as a teacher, you have such a, an important role and how do you think that as, as teachers or as parents, people can do better about speaking to, to children about racism? Well, so first I'll say that, I mean, yeah, I'm obviously like an educator, but I also like, I don't want to like claim the, like what like teachers, like what teacher teachers do, like yeah. teachers like K through 12, like in like our high schools, middle schools, grade schools, preschools, like those are like teacher teachers. And I would never like, I don't want to like claim any of that glory. Cause like what I do compared to that is very, you know, is very cushy. Like, again, like I teach adults, I teach 18 through whatever, but like, you know, they're technically adults and they're in many cases self-selecting sort of in, in my classroom. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I would like to think that I, change hearts and minds or like change people's thinking or like, you know, at least influence, you know, encourage people to think differently about the world around them, of course. Um, But I would say that like what I do is definitely not the hard work of like actually like molding minds, like no matter what, you know, conservatives like think about like the university, like we're not, you know, we would like to radicalize people, but I don't think we actually, that's actually what the university is for or does. Mm -hmm. But I mean, and I also like, and I also don't have kids and I, you know, I would never like want to tell someone how to like parent their child. Cause that is just like, gosh, that's, I like, every time I think about it, I'm like, oh my God, that's like so much work. <laughs> it's like, you can't it's, attest like, to that. It is, uh, <laughs> it is extremely challenging. It is. Definitely. I like, yeah, I like tell my parents, I'm like, oh my God, I'm sorry. I was such a little shit. <laughs> you, were just like, you were just yeah. like, give me a home and like food. And you were just like, can you clean your room, please? And I was like, I hate you. Oh, no, like, yeah. Oh my God, you know, what, how awful uh, of me. 
<laughs> but I do think, you know, uh, and I, I, I think like, and I think the author you mentioned, Ibram Kendi, I think he also has like, I don't know if it's out yet, but I think he also has like a children's book, um, which might be interesting. I haven't read it, so I can't attest, but yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the idea that like kids can't know about this stuff is just, you know, that's yeah. like, as people like to say, you know, you think your kid's like too young to learn about racism, but it's like, you know, when I was a kid, like I wasn't too young to like experience racism or whatever. I mean, it's <laughs> and, true. You know, it's like, it's like from other kids. So it's like, if your kids can pick up your, you know, ignorance, like, can't they, mm. why don't they just like pick up some, some knowledge or truth or something like that? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and like, I think, you know, a lot of people have done, you know, a lot of work to present material that like can be that like is for kids and yeah there's a ton there's a ton of books I went on Amazon to order a bunch for Cameron literally all of them are sold out I was like I'm (laughs) mad but also that's awesome you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah because I think like I think there's a lot of things that like I don't know I think kids are I don't know they're smarter than we give them credit for yes like they know 100%. what's up. Uh-huh. Like just because you don't like tell them there's like a pandemic doesn't mean they don't like notice like the air has like changed. So, like, they feel it differently, and they that, like, feel it. They feel it, and they and react daddy to are, it. Like, stressed out as hell. Yeah. Like they notice that stuff. So like mm-hmm. giving them a sort of giving them like a vocabulary, like you know, at you know, meeting them where they are, of course. But I think like giving them a vocabulary. I mean, it goes back to like being expressed like feelings and things like telling a kid like you can't know about this is like it doesn't like dull their curiosity. It just tells them that they're not allowed to ask questions and that they're not allowed to like express themselves in a certain way or feel a certain way or that it's like bad to wonder about things, which is. And they're more likely, I think, to take that even further. They're more likely to want to dive into that when you tell them like they can't know about it. Like that, like you said, it's not going to stop their curiosity. So either you help foster what they want to figure out in a way that's acceptable, I guess, or they're going to figure it out anyways. They're going to figure it out by watching you or by other environments or something like that. It's like they are so much smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah. And I think like, you know, people who work on like, like stuff about like human sexuality or whatever, I think like talk about this too. And like, you know, you don't have to like, okay, again, like, I don't know anything about raising pigs, but like things like, I know like conversation about like consent and things like that. It's like, you know, you can't be teaching someone about consent for the first time when they're like 18 year old, 18 years old. No, (laughs) no. That's a really good point because we have, since we have Cameron in Brooklyn now, obviously boy and girl and they have boy and girl parts and like, they'll take baths together and stuff like that. But we've told Cameron and we've even told Brooklyn, Brooklyn's 21 months old. Like you don't touch that. That's his part. You know, you don't touch that. That's his part. And then we tell Cameron, we're like, you never touch somebody else's body without permission. It's like simple language. He understands it, but it's like, you can't say nothing. Yeah. And it's like, it's not even like sexual. It's just like, don't, you know, you don't have like, like you can't touch someone without them, you know, saying it's okay. And also Mm -hmm. like letting kids know that they can say, that like they don't want to be touched like too like, yep. you don't have to like hug you know grandma like if you don't want to be hugged right now yeah um but I think like yes that's 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I just think like, you know, all these like big things that like we just expect people to like come out of adolescence just like knowing or something knowing. like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just like yeah. It's just like we have to lay the lay the groundwork for that. And you know, obviously for people who are adults now that didn't happen, you know, we have to you have to play catch up. But I think like knowing that you are catching up to something. I think is important and not sort of like wallowing in the idea of like, well, I didn't know. So, you know, it's not my fault. And it's like, I like, I guess it's not your fault, but it's also like, you know, there's like, for all, you know, just like a weight, like, just like destruction in your wake that like you just like didn't even know about so it's like yeah okay like <laughs> let's like pick up the pieces here <laughs> accept responsibility just accept it <laughs> just say like that's what I I've said it over and over again that like I would rather speak up at this point and be wrong so I can be corrected I would rather speak up at this point so I can be corrected than not speak up at all because that that to me has been I've learned that that's that that's ignorance that that's that's white privilege you know and that's you know I don't I don't want to be that and so it goes exactly along the lines with okay now that you're aware what are you going to do with it so yeah I just think that it's it's kind of just that the steps of like you said the the awareness have to has to come first we can foster that awareness in our children if we're adults and we don't know like learn now there's plenty of resources especially at this point and then don't forget to take action with that awareness right yes i think yeah the action is definitely crucial very crucial awesome well okay so tell us kind of maybe another loaded question but besides you know I think we've covered a lot obviously but besides you know besides being aware besides taking action and really something that I that I got from you and from this conversation is really being aware in those smaller situations and the daily events of of what's happening around you. Is there anything else that you just want people to be better at or be more aware of? You know, not to be too circular. I think just like kind of like what I said at the beginning, which is just that like a lot of us are just like really tired and like not tired and like not in like an antagonistic sense, like, oh, I'm like so tired of you, but like mm. just like literally like bone deep exhausted. And like, you know, I think, you know, protest comes out of like a sort of like fed upness. And I think people think it's like anger, but I really think it's actually just like exhaustion and tiredness and like literally being at the end of your rope and being like, we tried to tell you this way. And then we tried to tell you that way. And then we tried to let you know this. And then, you know, we kneeled at a football game and you didn't like that. And we you know, tried to stop voter suppression and you wouldn't let us, you wouldn't let us vote and you wouldn't let us do anything. You wouldn't let us speak out. You didn't even like when we said, you know, we said blackface was wrong and you thought that was like really hostile. We said black lives matter. You thought that was hostile. We like literally have tried every single avenue and it's like, y'all still won't listen. So that's why we have to have people out in the street because we tried all the ways. We tried the nice ways. We tried the polite ways and we have run out of ways. We've run out of like really nice, polite, you know, proper scholarly ways to like tell you that like shit is fucked up. Mm. And so 
now shit is gonna get fucked up yeah (laughs) because actually like so like if you know I think you know if anyone's gonna be mad like you gotta be mad at like the officials and the people who weren't gonna listen until until now and like now it's working like now we have you know Minnesota public schools I think or Minneapolis public schools are you know divesting from the police they've broken their contract with the like things are like getting done right Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. like if this is the way things are going to get done then they're going to get done but I think you know even when you see people out in the streets like those people are tired those people are sick those people have bills that you know they can't pay now because they got laid off because there was a pandemic and there was no social safety net for people to not work in a pandemic because it's a pandemic like right like people are hungry people are you know start like destitute like homeless like it's really you know without healthcare like it's really really rough and people are really really tired and just like sick and tired and exhausted and Mm -hmm. I don't know now I'm rambling because like I can't you know I don't have like any attention span worth a damn these days it's okay it's okay you're you're (laughs) you're aligning with exactly kind of like what my like mission has become in this and that's like understanding the the layers underneath that top layer and it's exactly what you said is like it's coming out, the protesting is coming out because there was sadness and that was expressed. And then there was, you know, just, just all these different ways of trying to get people listen. The reason why people are angry, the reason why people are, you know, exhausted, the reason why it's manifesting in this way and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you just said it here is that nobody listened the other times. And so when people don't feel seen or heard or listened to, then they're going to continue to react. It's, the same thing children do. Like negative attention is still attention. So just pay attention to me and let's get this done kind of thing. Like let's actually find a solution. And I think that you bring up a really good point about the exhaustion and the tiredness again, because I think that as white people, we need to give the black community a, what's the word I want to use here? we need to give them time. Like we can't just expect to be like, Hey, I'm doing something now. And then to be like, okay, great. Best friends forever. Like we're the problem. We have been the problem. Us not doing anything has been the problem. So you can't expect to just like rebuild trust in a relationship by just like reposting something or reading a book or whatever. Like you said, like, I think that we have to expect as people that there's going to be a wall. There's going to be a guard up. There's going to be some, some mistrust. And that's going to take a long, long time for a lot of people to be able to break through or come down in which we can be truly connected. But it doesn't give us an excuse not to try, if that makes sense. Totally. hundred percent. Awesome. Mindy, you have any questions? No, I just thank you so much for joining us today. It was really insightful and you know, as I continue to learn, I'm just appreciative of people who are willing to talk. So thanks for being here. Thanks yeah. for having me. This is really, really great. It was a nice way to break up the week. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a week. It's been um, a few months. It's been <laughs> 2020. Yeah. It's been, it's been a year. It's been like a century, like yeah. within, January, a century within a year. 
January was 200 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Before we wrap up, so can you tell people, number one, where they can find you? And number two, just a little bit about your book too. Yeah. So my book is called White Negroes. It's a collection of essays sort of loosely or I mean, not that loosely, but like sort of loosely on the theme of thinking about cultural appropriation in various areas of pop culture. So there's an essay about pop music, there's an essay about food, there's an essay about like online culture and viral videos, and it's, you know, a swath of things like beauty and fashion and all that. And it's just like sort of thinking about the way that culture and aesthetics sort of circulate interracially and why that is and how that is and thinking about all the ways in which sort of Black aesthetics are very popular and profitable, but like usually not actually for Black people. And so, Mm. you know, I, you know, I like to think it's not too didactic of a book. So it's not going to like, it's probably not going to tell you how to be a better white person, but I do think it will help you. I think, I hope it would help readers, you know, of, you know, whatever background sort of think deeply about pop culture, which I think we don't usually have a lot of occasion to think that deeply about, you know, pop culture is just like everywhere and, you know, whatever, but like there's history and and meaning there. And, you know, I just love talking about pop culture. So yeah, that's the book. You can find me. I'm on Twitter. Uh, My at is prose before bros and the four is the number four. Um, So prose as in like, you know, writing prose, the letter B, the number four and then bros, B-R-O-S. I've had it since I was like a sophomore in college. So that's why it's like, it's very juvenile, but I just keep it. I love it. And then I'm also, I am on Instagram at just like my name, like, like an adult. Well, (laughs) isn't that what all of us adults do now? We, uh, we will, we'll link it all in the show description here. So people can, can follow along and uh, where can people get your book? Wherever, I was say, wherever books are sold, but um, I mean, yeah, so you can get it from the publisher site, Beacon Press, but if you want to like find your local bookstore through like IndieBound, you can like put in your zip code, find your local bookstore if you have a, or if you just have a favorite local bookstore, you know, they'll either have it or they can put it on order and then send it to you. I got it on Amazon. <laughs> or Amazon, or Amazon. <laughs> All right, Lauren. Well, thank you so much for shedding some lights on uh, some light on the current events. And um, I'm happy to see you and happy we got to do this. And uh, I definitely have more questions and want to pick your brain on some other things that I'm thinking about. So I'll be bothering you more, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, totally. I truly have nothing but time these days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, we, we I have I have ideas that I want to run across kind of along the lines of what we we're talking about, but we'll we'll save that conversation for another day. So, um again, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. Um and, you know, just we're trying to do better. <laughs> I know <laughs> I know you're mad at us. I know white people are are awful and we're privileged, but some of us, a lot of us it seems like we're trying at least. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to try. (laughs) Exactly. 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 Mindy, can you tell us what we're going to hear on episode 27? 
Yes, absolutely. So in episode 27, we are doing an interview with author Bobby Kahn. And Bobby wrote the memoir In the Shadow of the Valley, uh, which is all about how her story represents not only some of the forgotten places in America, but people and experiences today in the political climate that we have. Awesome. All right. Well... Thanks for listening. Um, If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your social, tag us so we can repost you. And we will talk to you guys next week. Don't forget to live bravely today. If you are a CEO or entrepreneur, I want to invite you into a space that's unlike anything out there. CEO Power Hour is a free monthly live experience that you can join in person or virtually to get your questions answered to fulfill the desires for your business. Inside this room, you bring your biggest goal, the obstacles you are experiencing, or anything you want my expertise, eyes, and ears on. This guidance, along with the ideas and inspiration from other powerful women, allows you to be fully immersed in the energy of being supported and learn in a completely new way so that you can expand your business and your life to the next level. I created CEO Power Hour to bring together powerful business owners for connection, collaboration, and coaching. This is your invitation, and it's free. The link is in the show notes, so I hope to see you at our next monthly meeting.